my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. <sighs> Relax this Sunday with a little moment to yourself and the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. You can work from the road while turning your vehicle into a powerful high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi on a network that covers more roads than any other carrier. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls. Finish up that presentation or answer last-minute emails. Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to see if you're eligible for a free trial today. Based on independent third-party data, always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Radio presents Podversations, a weekly discussion with the biggest names and influencers in podcasting. Want to learn the secret psych-up rituals Scrub star Zach Braff and Donald Faison use before every fake doctor's real friends taping? How Vice News parachutes into war zones to rescue journalists from life-threatening situations? Or why Keegan-Michael Key and Blumhouse believe 3D audio is the future of storytelling? Whether you're a newbie trying to break into the podcast game or an exec trying to refine your playbook, Podversations is the easiest way to keep your pulse on the industry. Everybody, thank you so much for joining us for another session of the iHeart Podcast Speaker Series. This is my favorite part of the week when I get to stop down and have a conversation with a creator that we are getting into business with and making content with and putting cool stuff out there into the world with. And they evolved into some of the coolest, most fascinating conversations I've had ever, certainly in the last couple of years with everybody from Malcolm Gladwell to Martha Stewart to Will Ferrell. 
Today's guest is a mind blower and will really be a treat for me as a super fan and hopefully for everybody listening and watching too. First of all, before we go any further, Billy Corgan, thank you so, so much for hanging out with us for half hour. Thank you. I don't know if I can live up to the to the guests that you listed. I will endeavor to make myself worthy. I think if I said to them, hey, we've had Billy Corgan on, they'd be like, wait, wait what is this? What I can't, I can't, that's my take, but we'll see. I'm going to go with Martha Stewart's reaction would be who? <laughs> I'll sort of start at the end anyway, just to ground folks in why we're here today. You have a new album. We have a new album coming out, which is a 33-song rock. Is that new album what you guys are touring starting October? Yeah, it's it's a long story. We started recording it during the pandemic, and it's a massive effort. It's a three-act sort of musical. It's a sequel to other albums that we've had, Melancholy Machina. And so it's a it's a very integrative conceptual work. And when we've done these things in the past, it's been highly confusing to people why we're doing this. And so probably for the first time in my entire musical life, I'm actually going to explain why I'm doing what I'm doing down to the nuts and bolts of how we create music, but also sort of the intentionality behind why the pumpkins is so conceptual, which is something we've always sort of avoided. How do you distill down what ends up on an album with the assumption that you guys pile a great deal of work that doesn't end up on the album. How, how does that process happen? And at the end of the day, inevitably, are you thinking, man, you guys are only hearing 30% of what we were actually working on? I kind of look at it as like a movie. I'm a fan of the sort of auteur filmmakers like Tarkovsky and Fellini. And my sense of their process was that they sort of, uh, and even to a certain extent, Kubrick, they amass a huge amount of information and they sort of filter it down. And over time, it sort of congeals into something that's unlike any other piece of art. And so for us, it's a mighty endeavor. In this particular case, I think we had somewhere in the neighborhood of 80 different musical ideas that were boiled down to the 33. And then to try to put that into the mechanized process of actually recording an album in in the 21st century with people living in different cities and all that type of stuff. Just that alone, the military operation to try and record that much music, have that many lyrics. Uh, I think we had four different mixers on the album alone. You know, it was like a massive process because basically it's working on about five albums to get down to three. And then just to make three, you need a whole army to do that. Doing that during quarantine, were there things about it that made it better? More remote, private, isolated work or much harder because less collaboration? Uh, I think it's harder, actually. I'm not a person who like to make excuses, but I think that musicians not playing in the same room cuts off a huge part of our communication. Going way, way back for a sec now to origin stories and where you started, and I don't just mean where the Smashing Pumpkins started. In reading about you a little bit, you had a lot of different influences. When I read when you were eight years old, you heard a Black Sabbath record and the world kind of changed for a second. I heard there were influences from The Cure to Hendrix to Cheap Trick. But even before that, what made you open to those influences? Was there an influence in your life that was artistic, a relative, a friend that you saw early that made you open to art so that you might hear a Black Sabbath record when you're eight or nine or 10 and be changed by it? What happened first? Yeah, I love that question. Thank you. I don't think that's a question many people have ever asked me. I would point to two things. My father was a musician. He was a working musician. And at that point, he was still in his early 20s. So he still had a lot of ambition. So he was very connected to local music and also what was going on on television. This is all, of course, pre-MTV. And so I got a shotgun seat listening to him sort of give dissertations on why this music was good, why this music was bad, why this singer was good, why this was bad. So 
he formed a lot of my early opinions on how art could be quantified. And, you know, when I was five, six years old, listening to James Brown, I didn't really understand what I was hearing, listening to my father explain why James Brown was important. And then I would turn around listening to something kind of, you know, let's say sentimental, like the Carpenters. And my dad would be like, well, she's a good singer, but that song sucks or something. It was like, it was a way of having somebody sort of in your head very early on on how to quantify art. The other thing is growing up in Chicago, we have the Art Institute of Chicago, which is a world-class museum. And I, when I say world-class, I mean, I would put it up there with the Louvre. You know, Chicago being sort of, you know, second city in, in sort of emotional nature, feeling always like it was always behind New York. In the late 1800s, the local art patrons here endeavored to collect world-class art, which is why we have so much incredible stuff here from Picasso and Matisse on down. We have some of the most famous paintings in the, in the history of the world here in Chicago. So as a young child, five, six years old, you take the field trip and now I'm standing in front of, you know, Picasso's man with the blue guitar or whatever, the famous one. And you're going, this makes me feel something, but why is this more important than the drawing that I make on a piece of paper that my teacher tells me is important? Why, why is this hanging up on a wall and why have I made a trip here? Just those two sort of delineating points, I think, started me on a journey of, of kind of quantifying value. When you started to play music, was there a power to it that you felt like, wow, through this instrument, through music, I have a power over people? Or, and or maybe a second thing, too, which is I'm sort of like my dad. No, it was the opposite. My father did not want me to play music at all. And there's longer stories there, but essentially he was totally against the idea of me playing the guitar, which is the instrument that he played. And so playing music became kind of like the secret thing I hid under my pillow. Hmm. I was in a very abusive home and, you know, taking the guitar away from me became sort of a retaliatory thing. So music became kind of this instrument, literally, of how I was going to get out of my situation. I, I fixated very early on that music would be the thing that would change my lot in life. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure, I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. 
That's oracle.com slash strategic, oracle.com slash strategic. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. I think when I read a lot about you and thinking about what to talk to you about, I kept coming up with this notion of if it were a machine, there are so many different various complicated inputs <laughs> into the machine. I read about everything from Catholicism to wrestling to baseball to Philip K. Dick to the occult. And none of it in one sense makes sense. But in another sense, a lot of it feels like, well, oh, it's just a human being. How do you contend with all these different kinds of influences? How do they sort of distill down into what is your art at any given time? I would start here. I tend to think more like a visual artist, and I'm not trying to disassociate myself from other musical brethren and sistren. But, you know, in the visual arts, there's these fantastic books, for example, on Picasso, and they got very much into the atmosphere of the other painters around him and sort of what became the hothouse that created what became the Picasso language. We don't really seem to have that in music because music is so commercially driven and it's so of the moment and so fixated, generally speaking, on youth that to exist in the pop idiom and then have all these influences and then sort of wear them openly in a way that is seen as both commercial and anti-commercial simultaneously, it puts you sort of at odds with the normal process of how people sell themselves. When it's worked for me, I've sort of made it kind of like, oh, I'm the weirdo on the corner. I'm different. And when it hasn't worked for me, everybody points at me and says, this is the reason you're out on the corner and no one will accept you and why you don't belong in our institutional parts of the music business because you're sort of an outlier. What I find so funny about that is, is rock and roll has always been sold and marketed as the complete outlier class. Mm. In the 21st century, it has lost that status. 
And so literally music doesn't know how to deal with true outliers because everybody assumes it's a pose. That's really interesting. I mean, do you feel in that perspective hopeful for music today or do you feel like it's been corporatized a little bit too much, made a little safe? We could go on and on about the guardrails of that, like cancel culture on and on that make artists scared in the worst case scenario. But where's your head at? spiritually when you wake up every morning for the state of music? I think it's very similar to what you're seeing happening in the media slash news business, where music has, in order to commoditize itself in a very intense commercial atmosphere, where there's so much need for attention and you're competing on so many different levels, that it has eroded its sort of moral and emotional base with the public. And I think what you're going to see is, much like the media, you're going to see an alternate kind of representation of musical culture in a commercial way that breaks away from the traditional forms and never the twain shall meet again. In essence, I think once it's broken, it won't unbreak. You cannot ask generation after generation, and now we're probably going into our third generation, to accept commercial music at a level that is so vapid that it literally has almost no representation to the common person's life. I understand why the music business has weaponized its approach to try to take advantage of the ecosystems that exist. But what it's ultimately done is it's killed the golden goose. It's made less and less people interested in music as an emotional connector and more like a social connector. And I think if you go to any musical festival these days, it's more of a social event than it is an emotional rite of passage. I'm sure many young people would argue that, but I've been around long enough to see the difference. You know, I was just at a music festival the other day and I saw it. You can just see it. It's just a different vibe. It's less counterculture Woodstock and it's more like major corporation has set up shop. I'm part of that process, so I'm not here to denigrate it. I'm lucky to exist at the highest levels of the music business now for over 30 years. But I also call it for what it is. It's crash commercialism. And I guess that's what makes me the guy outside the kingdom throwing rocks at the wall that I occasionally get led inside the castle and get thrown back out. You know. <laughs> what do you like today? What are you listening to today that you're like, oh, that's a little different. That's a little more like what the emotional side of music is. I think you're one of these maybe rare artists where it's equally interesting what you make, but it's also interesting what you might be listening to that other people make. What kind of stuff do you listen to these days? I'm terrible in that I don't really listen to much new music, which is hard because I'm asking simultaneously for people to listen. I am in touch with a lot of young artists and I do sort of behind the scenes counsel a lot of young artists. And what I think is very difficult for them, and I say this empathetically, is they've been raised to believe that their value is intrinsically tied to acceptance, not their value in terms of reaching their highest artistic aptitude, and they're judged on that. So it's very hard for them to think outside the lane of acceptance. So they'll pick a lane. I'm the goth shoegaze person, and I kind of exist in this you know, minor subworld over here. So it's very hard for me as an adult who's listened to music now for over 50 years to follow subgenre into subgenre into subgenre and sort of try to chase down playlists to find the one nugget of gold because I was raised in a system that valued the crossover moment where the Beatles figured it out and then stormed the world, where the Stones figured it out, where the Cure figured it out, where Nirvana figured it out. I don't think you see that much anymore. And that's, again, not to denigrate the artists. They exist in a different ecosystem and their goals are differently fundamental than mine were. So I'm not saying mine were better, but I'm saying is the result of that is it created more stars with a vast repertoire of styles and moments. Take any year from 1956 to probably about 2000, and you can find on the charts a very, very wide and disparate set of musics that are accepted by 
by the general public as sort of having a moment. Look at the playlist over the last 20 years and you see increasing pressure in narrowing of style, tone, subject matter. And now, and then you, you touched on it very briefly, music has almost no counterculture voice. It represents a counterculture voice in terms of maybe lifestyle, but in terms of political and social, almost none, which is yeah. wild because literally the entire 20th century was music having the moral high ground of reporting whether it was a flood and the levee breaking or Bob Dylan marching with Dr. King. I mean, yeah. music has lost all that in its rush to compete in a new ecosystem that has totally different pressures. So going down to the young people, their goal is just to swim in an ocean of a million people swimming all in the same direction. And as long as they're swimming in the same direction, they're told they have value. And I'm the one person standing over here and saying, this literally will have no value at the end of the day other than the 1% who can get over the shore. And it's it's a sad thing to say because I know there are the Bob Dylans and the Kurt Cobains and the Bob Marleys, they're out there. It's no slight on the talent, but the, where would that talent go where they would be accepted as to who they are? You know, and it's like everything else is controlled. So why wouldn't that be controlled too? And it is. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You can work from the road while turning your vehicle into a powerful high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On a network that covers more roads than any other carrier. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls. Finish up that presentation or answer last-minute emails. Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to see if you're eligible for a free trial today. Based on independent third-party data, always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. You touch on it a little bit, this element of music that still serves 
maybe not just as a social connector, almost like a audio form of social media in real life, which is maybe not all music can live up to be, but it still serves as this emotional vein you can hit. And I want to talk a little bit in that sense about Highland Park. You've lived there a long time. We were talking about this before we went live on this conversation. And I read about that too. You've been there a lot in that community. That is your community. It was hit with horrible tragedy recently. And you used music to some extent to try to bridge that gap back a little bit and rebuild back a little bit that community. Is that a role of music that music can uniquely play to heal, to bring back together when done correctly? I don't want to make it cheesy or oversimplified, but that seemed very powerful to me. What role does music play in that moment? I thank you for mentioning that. Just to give some context for people who don't know, Highland Park was the shooting, the mass shooting on, on July 4th at a parade. There were 3,000 people at the parade. And under a minute, the shooter, I think, fired something in the range of 83 rounds into a crowd of people. Kids, seniors, just a nightmare scenario. Seven people have perished, and I think about over 50 were shot. So we had a charity concert at my tea house here in Highland Park called Madame Zuzu's, and a bunch of different people played. And it was very grateful, and we were able to raise money. But what I really saw in the community was people sort of thanking me for just changing the sort of the emotional temperature. And so to the spirit of your question, I start here. Music is composed of waves, the sound of a voice, the sound of a guitar, the sound of a bass. And the beautiful thing about a wave is it sort of penetrates the physical nature of, of a human being. And musicians are intuitively sort of gifted across the spectrum, you know, to understand how those particular waves affect people. You know, if you're a musician, you know what I'm talking about when you say how a D major chord can make you feel happy. There's something about the waves of a D major chord and everybody from Bach on down figured this out, right? Music has a way of multidimensionally and holographically sort of saying what can't be said with just simple language. It is the sound of the voice plus the lyric, plus the key of the song, plus the particular performer. You know, the same song in Charlie Parker's hands is a different song in Miles Davis's hands. And there's something magical about music when it works. And I think what was so beautiful about something so terrible was that we were able to illustrate that by coming together as a community, and a community of musicians like-minded in that particular evening and playing music, everything from jazz to folk to modern pop, we sort of healed something that no amount of words and no amount of hashtags or picket signs can do. And the reason I called the event together and together again is, and I said it during the concert is, no amount of tragedy can take away the fact that when human beings unify in a common cause, that is the most powerful thing in the world. You can call it love, you can call it community spirit, but that is the most powerful agent in the world for change, but also sort of endurance. Because when you deal with something that is unspeakable, and this tragedy is literally unspeakable, how does somebody do something like that in under a minute to completely innocent people? There's a boy lying just a mile away from here who's paralyzed from the waist down and, and was basically shot in half. You know, his, I, I believe from what I've heard, his esophagus was melted by one of the bullets. He's barely survived, and now he's kind of come out the other side, and it looks like he will survive. This is an eight-year-old boy who was just standing at a parade holding his parents' hand. And next thing you know, his life is forever altered because somebody makes this horrific decision. It is unspeakable. It is beyond human conception, I believe, to put yourself in the mind of such something so terrible. So how do we combat that? We can only come from a similarly unspeakable place, but a place of spirit. 
is the opposite of that a real challenge today to be an artist? Because I mean, what, let me put it this way. What you just described is this superpower of art, which is awesome. And when it can do things that other tools and mediums just can't do. The flip side of that is to go back to the era we're in, not to sound like a cranky old man, but- Too cranky old man. Cranky old man. The era we're in is hard for artists, I think. To put it this way, a lot of the podcasters we work with are comedians for their day jobs. We have a whole podcast network with Will Ferrell of slates of shows he's launched with really funny new up and coming comedians. And talking to them about their art form today in the United States, it's really interesting how through one lens, it's harder than ever because of social media and cancel culture. And yet their job, maybe literally their job is to push envelopes and make you uncomfortable. Laugh, yes, but make you uncomfortable and say things they're quote unquote not supposed to say. And it's made that kind of work harder than it was, say, last year. Do you feel that way broadly as an artist where it's like, I've got to get these voices out of my head, otherwise I won't make anything interesting? Or am I reading too much into that? What's your take? It reminds me of that kid's game you see it like Chuck E. Cheese, whack-a-mole, right? Yeah. People who do not understand the power of the human spirit will play whack-a-mole and they will try by being censorious about words, dress, statements, posture, of which mine is poor. They will try to whack-a-mole art and say that which can't be said and that which can't be done, right? As we commonly refer to it now as cancel culture. I would argue the most subversive act of the 20th century was John and Yoko in the bed in Toronto saying war is over. Yeah. With three words, they implanted in the universal mind, which is now billions on this planet, the idea that, you know, there isn't a war if people don't show up to fight it. The natural human spirit is not to fight. The natural mm -hmm. human spirit is to love and find common ground. That's historically proven. It's almost not debatable, but people would debate it. That's where I was going with that. So there are things that are constantly said in public that make me uncomfortable. There are things that are constantly done in public that make me uncomfortable as just a father even. I've been in public life for over 30 years. Google my name and enjoy the venom that's been spewed at me for over 30 years. Yeah. Under no circumstance would I ever say that those people should not have the right to say those things or have done those things. Now, the argument, of course, is I've had a, a charmed life and I, you know, you can make an argument in a different ideological frame that I'm from a privileged class. I, I, of course, would argue against that, but let's accept that even on the premise of something. I don't know what it's like to feel the things that many people in this culture feel. So what I try to do is I try to balance. There must be something true in what's being said. Because historically, we have had to show growth as a society that people who have been marginalized by American society at some point need some form of accommodation to create a level playing field. I'm all for the level playing field. So as an artist, to sort of kind of thread the needle on the answer here is I appreciate cultural norms shifting, and I just have to go to a deeper place to find a clearer message to say what I want to say. So mm -hmm. if somebody misinterprets something I've said or done or will say or will do as an act of harm, I'd like to least think I would be willing to raise my hand and say, yes, that was meant to be an act of harm or no, that was just a poor choice of words. And now in this different light or with a different understanding, I have to apologize because the last thing I want to do is injure. I guess what I'm trying to say is most artists I don't think want to injure. Most artists are not looking to cause harm. But invariably, if you're going to speak 
the truth, which is always a debatable concept, you are going to offend somebody. So the question is, who decides when that offense is criminal slash cancelable? And unfortunately, the culture we live in now, it's moving so quickly. I think most of us almost need a handbook weekly to understand the difference. And as somebody who speaks in public for a living, there are things I would easily said three, four or five years ago that I would even remotely come up to the line and even touch anymore. And I'm cool with that. I wouldn't be here talking and even talking about it if I wasn't cool with it. But the problem is, is sometimes that uncomfortable territory where an artist where a public person walks up to a particular line becomes the thing that is transformative. So when you back people off the line before they even get to the line, you're probably at the end of the day in this sum total of things, probably you're disincentivizing change organically. You're trying to, in essence, manufacture change, but right. the best change is organically because when you change hearts and minds, they're changed forever. So let me end on the podcast, just hearing you explain a moment ago, the pros, cons, challenges, new world of artistic expression. Like you're one of the most articulate artists, to put it broadly, that I've heard talk and in interviews and not just how you express yourself in your music, but the way that you talk about music and art. And so we at iHeartMedia were really, really genuinely excited when you sort of turned your sights to podcasting. We at iHeart have fallen in love with this medium. There are now 120 million Americans a month. One out of three people in the country listen to a podcast a month. It's the newest mass reach medium. And it feels still like a special medium where there is something about podcasts and that feels like you're on the phone with a podcast host. It doesn't feel like a one-to-many medium. It feels oddly like a one-to-one medium, which is kind of unique and rare and trues up, at least with my own experience. When I listen to a good podcast, it feels like I'm talking to the person who's done it. You're going to launch a show called 33. And it's insight into your own musical world, the stuff that makes you go as a musician and where your songs came from and new and old. Before I throw it open to you as to why you chose podcasting and what you want to do with the medium, it's been fun for me to see people who don't do podcasting as their only end day job, turn their sights to the medium and be surprised by it. I mentioned Will Ferrell, for example. He launched a podcast with us three or four years ago called the Ron Burgundy Podcast. Obviously a famous character. He had done a bunch of movies. He didn't want to do a new movie, at least yet or now. And so he thought he'd try his hand at doing a podcast, sort of strip away all the visuals and see what would happen with a character like that when he couldn't rely on the sight gag of Ron Burgundy. And fell in love with the medium, launched a company called Big Money Players Network. And now we have like 10, 12 podcasts that he's executive produced. And I think he likes the creative freedom of it, the speed of it. But I think it genuinely surprised him how awesome it was as a medium to play in just audio. What about you? Why podcasting? What do you expect from it? What do you think will surprise you? Maybe just talk through it a little bit. Let me start here because it's kind of goes off the tangent of what we were just talking about. I found that my relationship to the media, which was very combative for decades, I just finally accepted that it wasn't going to change. And I wasn't willing to necessarily compromise who I was. And maybe they grew tired of me. So it was maybe sort of a, a mutual sort of agreement. And I took my voice in many ways for many years sort of off the field. And this is not to suggest that in any way my, my podcast would be controversial. I, I plan on talking strictly about art and the making of art. But I think it's very interesting that now that podcasting has become something that's sort of institutional in America, it's something that you can trust as a form. And there's enough data there to suggest that you know there's an upside. I looked at it as like, I'm sitting on all this information that I do think people would find 
online interesting, but I need the right means by which to share it in a conversational and fun and relaxed way. People have often asked me through the years, what's the question you wish you got asked more of in the thousands of interviews you've done? And I've always said, it fascinates me that almost no interviewer asked me about the process of making art. We talk about the end result of the art, but almost never about the making of the art, which is so strange to me because to me as an artist, that's the most fascinating part, not the song that people listen to. It's just as fascinating to me the song that people don't listen to and why. So I like the notion of using this new work, which is 33 songs, and one song at a time, breaking down the conceptual and aesthetic basis of this vast work, which is really hard to sort of quantify here. Just imagine this outsized musical in a land that keeps telling you less is more, not more is more. And then at the same time, use that to include other people into the forum to talk about art. So we're hoping to have a special guest per week. And then additionally, then pivot off that and also talk about some of the classic songs. And for the first time, really talk about the lyrical and emotional subtext of the songs, because I figured out very early on that if I talked about my lyrics in public and my intentionality of my lyrics in public, that I was just opening myself up to undue criticism that really wasn't coming from fans. It was just coming from people wanting to take shots. So for 30 years, I really have not talked about the process of my work. I have not talked about why it is done a certain way. I've, in essence, using a wrestling term, which is kayfabe. I've kayfabed the world into thinking I'm one particular type of artist, and I talk about my art in one way. And actually, it's all a deception. I'm, for the first time, going to talk about the art and why it's really made the way it is and why we do what we do. And so I hope it will be fascinating to people as we let people behind our own castle walls to explain this wacky world, which is the Pumpkins. Because as I like to argue, the Pumpkins is probably one of the most successful artistic bands in the history of rock and roll. We're usually judged as not being big enough as a commercial act. But if you actually look at how weird we are and how vast our musical diaspora is, we've actually been quite successful and we're, we're probably having as much success now as we've had in about 20 years. So it's a really good time to talk about the past, the present and the future creatively and spiritually. And I think also the work that you've put out there, certainly the pumpkins have put out there, but also you've put out there, it feels so layered like an Edward Gorey book where you're like, I don't know where to come at it. I don't think I'll ever hit the bottom of it. So to have a soundtrack to that soundtrack in the form of a podcast feels sort of perfect to me. Yeah, I've been supposed to be writing a book for years and years and years. And the book sort of more focuses on my personal journey behind all this. So I feel very comfortable that this will be the media to talk about the actual process of the work. When I've told a few people about it, they kind of shake their heads and think, well, that can't be very interesting. I, I can assure you if you're a fan of art and you're a fan of aesthetics and you're a fan of process, which many artists are and many people are fascinated by how art gets made, sort of like Willy Wonka stuff. How do you make the chocolate? Right. This will be a very, very interesting deep dive into influences, aesthetics, and inspirations, which are vast and varied, but but I think that's what will make it interesting. Awesome. Billy, I cannot thank you enough for hanging out with us today. It means the world to us. I'm sure you're a busy guy with lots coming down the pike this fall as you launch onto a big new tour with a huge new awesome album, but I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for your time today. Everybody, thanks so much for hanging out. I'm Connell Byrne. I'm the CEO of the iHeartMedia Digital Audio Group. We've been talking with Billy Corgan, who beyond being a musical, awesome hero and legend in my own life and many others has a podcast coming out called 33 with iHeartMedia that we were very, very psyched to get a listen to what has made him tick and makes him tick today artistically. Everybody have a great day. Stay well, be safe. Conversations is a production of iHeartRadio. You can find more from the biggest names in podcasting on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.